During the time of Xerxes, he reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. Again, his vast wealth was on full display. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace at this same time. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing only her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and angry. The king consulted with his wise men, asking, According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. They responded, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all of the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict, edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king was pleased with his advice, so he did as they proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts to the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither a father nor a mother. This young woman had a lovely figure and was beautiful. She was also known as Esther. All right, good morning, Christ Church. I'm Pastor Bob, uh, lead pastor here at uh, Christ Church. And we are uh, still moving this summer in the story, right? And remember what we've been doing this whole summer with the story is we've been uh, looking at the experiences of God's people, the experiences of individuals, looking at those stories and experiences, and then and then understanding that there's a greater story uh, at play, right? It's not just the story that's going on in people's lives, but there is this 
this bigger, greater story uh, that God is about. And today, uh, when we look at the book of Esther, uh, that just becomes absolutely extraordinarily uh, obvious, right? It is kind of the, the theme, kind of the kernel, the theme uh, of Esther, that God is absolutely sovereign and God is absolutely at work, even though you may not know it and you may not see it. He is a sovereign God and he accomplishes our purposes, okay? Uh, so let's unpack that. Here's what's going on in the book of Esther and where we are today. Uh, the book of Esther experience takes place during the reign of King uh, Xerxes the first. He is the son of Darius. He is the grandson of Cyrus. You say, who are those dudes? If you were here last week, you would know who the grandson Cyrus there uh, is, uh, because Cyrus is the guy uh, who uh, was the Persian that, that uh, came in, took over uh, after the Babylonians came in, established that Persian empire, and he issued the edict of Cyrus, which allowed God's people to return back to Jerusalem. That's what we did last week, remember? Uh, God's people going back to Jerusalem and the prophet Haggai and the prophet uh, Zechariah, right? And so that's what's been, uh, what's been going on. But as we look at last week, even though Cyrus issued that edict saying you can go on back now, the reality is not everybody went back. Keep in mind that the, the Jewish God's people, the Jews, have been living in exile in Babylon and now the Persian Empire uh, for uh, 70 years, right? Now, what, what happens to you after you live in one place for 70 years? Listen, I just uh, sold my house not too long ago, and Jill and I moved up to Grafton uh, to a condo, and we lived in that house for 18 years. Do you know what happened after 18 years? Holy cow, I can't believe the stuff that took over our house, right? I mean, when you live in one place for a while, what happens? Well, you, 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 you just get embedded uh, in that place, right? It, it just becomes where you are. It just becomes where you live. And, and the stuff that's involved in all of that just kind of captures you into that place. And so the reality for God's people is that even though Cyrus came along and said, you can go back, right? The reality is only a few of them did. Not a huge population, not a huge number of people went back to Jerusalem. The vast majority of God's people stayed in the Persian Empire. And so they were dispersed throughout the entire Persian Empire. And for those that didn't go back, what were they doing? Well, they were just living life. They were just doing that everyday thing that you and I do, right? Just just making decisions as best they can and just having life unfold and sometimes feeling like they got it all under control and a lot of times feeling like they don't have anything under control, right? And things just kind of coming at them and things that they're doing and the results of all of it, they were just simply living life. And we're going to see today in the book of Esther that's exactly what has happened. It is the, it's just living life with Esther and Mordecai and Xerxes and Vashti and the bad guy uh, Haman. They're just living life. But as they live life, the book of Esther would have us see that God is equally living and working. The great irony of the book of Esther is that God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. His name doesn't appear. He's, he's not even referred to in the book 
of Esther. It's the last time you read a book out of the Bible that doesn't refer to God. Not in Esther. But it is absolutely clear. It is just absolute throughout the entire book that you see God's activity unfolding. It may seem hidden, but the reality of it is there. So let's jump into the book real quick. I have got 20 minutes and 30 seconds left, and we've got to cover 10 chapters, right? That's why you came in today and got the handout today and said, holy cow, it's a whole page. We're going to be here two hours. What's going on? No, I've got another service at 1045. Don't worry about it, right? But we are going to run real fast. Through, through 10 chapters, we're going to give you the highlights of the story. Uh, so you've got to go back in it today and do your own work, right, when you get home and read those 10 chapters and learn the book of Esther, right? So what's going on? You heard the beginning, right? Kind of the standard is set in the beginning. Uh, King Xerxes is, is on the throne. He gets this bright idea that he's going to invade Greece. And if you're going to invade Greece and you're the big ruler of the Persian Empire, uh, how do you prepare for that? Well, simple. You throw a party. Does that surprise you? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to invade Greece, what do you do? Well, you get all your nobles, generals, all the dudes together, all the power people in one place. And the way you do that is you just throw this humongous bash. And so that's what he did. He threw a party for about 180 days. Right? And uh, as that party is unfolding and all the strategizing is taking place, which, of course, that seems to me just absolutely what you want to do, strategize how to invade Greece when you're loaded and drunk. But nevertheless, that's what they were doing, okay? That's what they were doing. And somewhere in the middle of all that, it says like seven days in, King Xerxes gets this great idea that he is so full of himself, and the way he's going to show that is to have his queen come in and parade around and show her beauty. And the inference is, and most scholars believe when it says, you know, and to have her come in with only her crown meant that he just wanted his queen to come in absolutely nude and just kind of parade around to show how great and fortunate he is, right? And ladies, Queen Vashti hears that, and she says... No! No! Not happening. I'm not parading my stuff around a bunch of lecherous drunk, right? I mean, no! Not, not happening. What's the outcome? When you tick off the king, there's consequences. She disobeys the king. So Xerxes has her banished from the empire. Now, that sets the tone for the book. This is right away. It sets the tone for the book that that you have to understand going in that when you tick off the king, there's consequences. When you're not obedient to this king, you can pay a price. So this is the standard. This is the precedent that is set in the book. We go to the next step. No queen. What do you do? Need a new queen. How do you get a new queen? Well, hey, you go shopping. And so uh, what you do is you send out emissaries to all the provinces in the empire, and uh, you have them bring the best and the most beautiful uh, for a trial run kind of thing with, with the king. And uh, so they bring all these beautiful maidens to Susa, the capital, and uh, each one of them gets prepared to meet the king. It takes a year for each one of them to be prepared to meet the king. And, of course, then they, 
they meet the king quite intimately and literally, and then the king gets to decide, is this the one, is this the one, is this the one, is this the one, right? And so they're all brought there, and among them in this new search for uh, a new queen is this young maiden, uh, Esther. And Esther comes, she is prepared, Esther meets the king, and it says, And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. Esther is now queen. But she also has a secret. We'll see it later on. But she also has a secret. She doesn't tell the king that first and foremost, she belongs to God. It is her secret. Now, this experience in Esther, even though the book is named uh, Esther, is not simply Esther's experience. It's a family experience. She has a cousin named Mordecai. And Mordecai isn't simply a cousin to her. Mordecai is older than she is. And Esther, at a young age, was orphaned. And so her cousin Mordecai basically adopts her and becomes her stepfather. And so Esther has Mordecai as this counselor and this guide in her life. And Mordecai is just a good guy. He is a faithful guy, and he is a good guy. He is also a descendant of Saul. Right? He comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and he is a descendant of Saul. Put that on the shelf, right? Because that's going to become important later on in the book. Okay? Uh, and Mordecai shares the secret uh, with Esther that she is, first and foremost, one of God's uh, people. The secret is kept alive. And you know about secrets, right? Secrets are dangerous. They're dangerous. So Mordecai uh, is a good guy. He is a faithful guy. He shows that, that he is just a good, righteous guy uh, as he is serving King Xerxes. He overhears a plot while he's serving uh, to assassinate King Xerxes. And so when he hears of the plot, he goes to Esther, tells Esther what's going on. Esther gets the message to the king, and the king discovers the plot. And, of course, the two guys that are behind the plot, uh, what do you suppose happens to them? When you disobey the king, there are consequences. Their heads end up on a pole. Uh, not good for them, right? But Mordecai shows himself as being a good and faithful guy, right? When that all happened, there's a shakeup. Xerxes sets up a shakeup in his government because now he doesn't know who he can trust. And he elevates this guy named Haman, right? Haman is so full of himself that once he got elevated, he demanded that when he would walk by, everybody was supposed to bow down uh, to him, right? Only problem is Mordecai, we learned, is a good and faithful guy, right? And so whenever Haman would come by Mordecai, Mordecai would not bow down. Why? Because he is a good and faithful guy. And you shall have no other gods before, and you shall not do what? Bow down. No bowing down to somebody else, right? You know who's first and foremost in your life. You know where your faithfulness lies first. So Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. How do you suppose Haman feels about that? 
That's right. He's not real happy with the whole thing. And so Haman becomes the villain. He becomes the person who is the opposition to God's purposes in the story of Esther. And so uh, Haman, even though he is elevated, exercising his power, he becomes a devious plotter against God's people. And this all makes sense because of who Haman is. We learn in the scripture uh, that Haman is an Agagite. Say that word three times real fast, right? Anyway, that's who he is. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it means he comes to the lineage of King Agag. And that means he is an Amalekite. Ooh, can you believe that? He's an Amalekite. You know about those dudes, right? Those Amalekite folks? I mean, they came ancestrally from Esau. And so they have always been in opposition to God's people, those Amalekites, right? And not only have they always been in opposition, when the people of God were coming out of Egypt from slavery and they were making their way to the promised land, you remember those Amalekites, right? Those Amalekites were the guys that were always attacking from the rear, right? They were always picking off God's people from the rear. They have always been enemies of God's people. And Saul, when Saul was king, remember what I told you, take it off the shelf now, right? When Saul was king, God told Saul he was supposed to kill King Agag and wipe out all the Amalekites. This Saul fails to do. He is disobedient. And look what happens. Saul's disobedience leads to 700 years later in a whole new place a plot to wipe out God's people. Not just Mordecai, but to wipe out God's people. Ooh, think about that one. What is the long-term impact when we don't act faithfully? Haman is that guy. He is so upset with Mordecai that he decides not only will he get rid of Mordecai, but he will get rid of all of God's people. So he devises a plot. He gets Xerxes to sign off on it. And so a day is set, and all of God's people are supposed to be destroyed throughout the entire Persian Empire. Mordecai. Mordecai, faithful Mordecai, he hears of this experience. He goes into sackcloth and mourning, and he immediately turns to Esther. He turns to Esther. And now, what's taken place so far? So far, life has taken place. Sins, disobedience, hatred, secrets, life. You know it, right? Not so different from us. Still going on today. Life just unfolding with the hatred of others, the sins that we commit, the secrets that we harbor, all of that piling together. And now is the moment. And into that moment, Mordecai steps up and he appeals to Esther. And he says, don't think for a moment 
Not just a moment. Don't even let it cross your mind. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen? Why? For just such a time as right now. This moment. Let's unpack for a minute what Mordecai is telling uh, Esther. First, Mordecai is reaffirming the importance of faithfulness, isn't he? He's saying, listen, faithfulness to who you are as God's people is more important than. In this case, more important than what? Well, Esther knows that if she goes to King Xerxes and she is uninvited, if she just intrudes into the king's, uh, into the king's day in his presence, she knows she will probably die. Because that was the law. <laughs> you don't mess with the king. Remember, we learned in the first chapter, Vashti messed with the king. What happened to her? Banished. You don't mess with the king. Esther knows that if she approaches the king and she does this without his invitation, she risks her own death. And Mordecai says what? Faithfulness is more important. Faithfulness is more important. Faithfulness is more important as you let life unfold, as you go through the everyday, as you experience life unfolding. It is more important to be faithful than you fill in the blank. More important to be faithful than than get the big promotion. More important to be faithful than somehow be in the in crowd. More important to be faithful than. You get the picture? More important to be faithful than even death. It is the most important thing, the highest and greatest use of our life, is to live to His honor that our lives would be used by Him. It is more important to be faithful. Second thing Mordecai tells Esther is life isn't all about you, Esther. Right? Life isn't all about you. He says it this way. He says, look, if you keep quiet, if you think life's all about you and you're going to somehow protect yourself, you think it's all about you, you're going to keep quiet at this time, don't, listen, don't misunderstand. God is absolutely sovereign and he is going to work. He is going to protect his people somehow and through someone else. So Esther, don't get so prideful. Don't get your head full. Don't think somehow this is all about you. No, God is going to accomplish his purposes with you or without you. I can drop dead tomorrow from a heart attack and Christ's church is going to advance because it's not about me. It is all about him because he is absolutely sovereign. See, we get so tempted to somehow think as we're unfolding life, as we're in the middle of whatever it is that's going on, especially if it's a crisis, that somehow the experience itself is all about who? Us. No. Every experience that unfolds in life is an opportunity for God's sovereignty to be expressed. Esther, it's not all about you. Even if you you don't step up, God is still going to step in and protect his people because he always fulfills his promises. 
Third thing Mordecai says is, Esther, in spite of all of that, you've got to understand, as your life is unfolding, this is your moment. And God has put you in this place for this moment. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that happens in our life is by the choice of God. No, remember, Haman here is doing this evil things because of Haman's own desire and Haman's own purposes, right? God didn't put it into Haman and say, go wipe out my people. No, God is now responding to the reality of what is going on, but he has already put in place, knowing what's coming, he's already put Esther into this moment. For a time such as this, Esther, Mordecai says, you are in this place. Okay. How's life unfolding? You see, so many times, life unfolds, and so often, because of like Esther, because of the sins of others, because of just the reality, the secrets we keep, and our own disobedience, because life is just broken, what happens? So often it seems like it just gets out of control, that it's just somehow beyond us. And Mordecai would remind us, no, listen, just be faithful. It's not all about you. Just be faithful. It's not all about you. And besides, in this moment, you have the opportunity to serve him. That God is absolutely sovereign. You may not see him, but he is absolutely sovereign. Now, if you're in the room today and you're already a Christ follower, right? If you, are, you already said, yes, Jesus is Lord, you ought to get this. You ought to get this because there's only one place we have to look beyond the book of Esther to see the truth that the book of Esther is telling us today. All we have to do is look to that place right there, the cross, right? Look, think about that. Look to the cross. Can, can you think of the cross and, and think somehow the cross, the cross is this billboard that displays the obvious activity of God. No, not really. Back in life, when life was unfolding, when he was hanging on there, what was the cross? The cross was a billboard about the severity of judgment by the Romans to those who disobey. When you disobey, there are consequences. The billboard they wanted you to see was the Romans are in charge, and when you mess up, you pay the consequences. And yet when we look at what God was doing at the cross, what do we know is happening? We know right there in that hidden place where God seems the least obvious is the very place that he is accomplishing our life. Our forgiveness, the opportunity to walk with him faithfully and endure whatever life throws at us because we know he is in the middle of it, whether we see him or we don't see him. And we just live for the moment to honor him. So Esther, 
Esther takes the risk, and we see that God is at work in other places. And you'll identify with this, no doubt, in your own life, where God is setting up these divine appointments. And so Esther decides to step in. She has some prayer and some fasting, and she sets up a meal to approach the king, takes a couple meals. She invites him back for a second meal. In between the first meal and the second meal, the king tries to sleep, and he can't sleep. I don't know if it was the cabbage or whatever it was, right? But he can't sleep, and so he gets up in the middle of the night. He's got insomnia, he can't sleep, gets up in the middle of the night, and of course he does what every king would do when you get up in the middle of the night and you can't sleep. You bring in the recorder that's written the history of your reign, and you say, hey, read me a few pages about how great I am, right? That's what he did. Just read me a few pages about how great I am, you know, kind of thing. And get this, amazingly, this is like, this is so God at work, right? You can't miss this. If you know God's sovereignty, you can't miss it. So, you know, open the book. Let's see how great King Xerxes is. And where do you suppose the recorder opens the book? And what story do you suppose he tells King Xerxes? But the very story about Mordecai exposing the plot to assassinate him. How does that happen? How does that happen? But by the sheer grace and sovereign power of a seemingly hidden God. Xerxes is reminded of Mordecai's faithfulness. Esther approaches Xerxes the next day with the next meal. She does so because she has come to the place in her life where she understands it's about faithfulness. It's not all about her. It's about seizing the moment for him. And so after some prayer and some fasting, she ends up saying, listen, I'm going to do this because if I must die, I must die. What she understand? My life is here for him. My life's here for him. Highest and greatest purpose. My life is here for him. And so she takes the risk, and she approaches Xerxes, and she exposes the plot. And the outcome, Haman. Haman ends up with his head on a pole, and the people of God end up being not only preserved, but the people of God are given the opportunity under Xerxes to wipe out their enemies. And it's here. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored where? The plot that was designed to wipe them out becomes the opportunity for them to be lifted up before the entire empire of Persia. How awesome is our God? You see, you may look at your life right now. I know some of you are going through some stuff, and you're asking the question, where is he? Because it seems beyond control. Where is he? Listen, just be faithful. Just be faithful. It's not all about you. Just be faithful. Because God is absolutely sovereign. And Jesus made a promise. He said that when we belong to him, we are in the hands of God. And no one, no power of the earth, no power of hell can snatch us from him. Just be faithful. It's not about you. And it is the moment and the opportunity for you to just step in and say, God is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. And I know it 
because I look at the cross. Let's pray. Father, you're incredible. You're sovereign. Nothing escapes you. Absolutely nothing. And you love us beyond measure. Lord, so often uh, we feel uh, alone. We don't see it, especially when struggle comes. Life unfolds with, with, the, with the hurt and the secrets and the disobedience, all the stuff of life. And yet we know you're there. And so we, we ask this morning, just convince us of your sovereignty. And help, help us in those times of difficulty to just be faithful. Don't bow down to, to the moment and the experience, but just be faithful to you. To know that you are in this. It's not about us, but it is a moment when we can just step out and tell the world, you come first. If we must die, we die. But we will always serve you first. So, Lord, thank you for your grace, your love for us, your goodness, your power, your strength, your hope. Empower us every day from this day forward to be faithful and to live for you, just as Jesus did. In his precious name we pray. Amen.